It is truly a privilege and a precious one at that that we have this evening to come together on this occasion to lift our voices together in song and hasn't it sounded so lovely as we have encouraged one another, taught one another in the words of Colossians 3.16 as well as to offer the heartfelt praise of our being to the great God who has made us, fashioned us, and brought us to the occasion this afternoon. I might take just a moment and add one brief announcement to those that Brother Randall made. I had failed to share that with him. But uh, my family and I will be at the Las Casas Church of Christ this coming Friday evening. I've been invited to speak as a part of their vacation Bible school. So if you happen to have a desire to move toward Murfreesboro this coming Friday evening, uh, services begin at 7 o'clock. We'd certainly appreciate, love to have anyone that might be able to be with us there for the Brethren at Las Casas this coming Friday night. Tonight, as we continue our series of studies on the book of John in the New Testament, we, to this point, have looked at some five lessons in the series, all along the while helping ourselves to study with our youngsters as they prepare for the Bible Bowl. And in that study, we've already learned so many powerful and mighty characteristics of the book of John. As you ponder just a few of the things that we have seen in the opening five lessons, everything from the witnessing character to the nature of belief to the absolute character of what we saw even last week, that Jesus is the bread of life. Isn't it true, even as we learned this morning, that our will is the dictating factor of our proper service to God, and where do we find the sustenance for our spirit, for our soul, if you please? Is it not the fact that Christ is the bread of life? Just as surely, then, as we may starve our physical body without its proper physical nourishment, we can also starve our spiritual being with no association to the Master, failure to partake of that bread of life. In a way, that's a nice introduction to the thoughts of this evening. You might have noted in John 7 verse 41, the lesson text, at least in part, read, This is the Christ. One of the singular features about the book of John is the way that it presents the divinity of the Savior. Matthew, Mark, and Luke emphasize that divinity in various and sundry ways, but is it not John? written considerably later than the others, that is able to pinpoint and to highlight the deity and the divinity of Christ. This is the Christ. Tonight, let's look at chapters 7 and 8 in the book of John and see some of the features of His divinity and what that means for you and me in our proper service to Him even today. Again, as we begin in chapter number 7, we'll divide the lesson into two parts. The first part... We'll begin with discussions entitled, Jesus Teaches at the Feast. In the opening verses of chapter 7, you might already have noted that on many occasions, the book of John cast the spotlight on one or more of the Lord's journeys to Jerusalem to celebrate one or more of the feasts. Perhaps the Feast of Dedication, perhaps the Feast of Passover, perhaps the Feast of Ingathering or one of the others. But John draws their attention very carefully to these particular trips because there he was able to interact with those Jewish leaders and it was there that some of the powerful teaching of the temple that he so often shared, in fact, took place. The Feast of Tabernacles took place in the seventh month of the Jewish year and it was a wonderful commemoration of God's especial blessing upon the ancient Israelites during the course of their wilderness wandering. 
The amazing thing is they were commanded to, in fact, dwell in booths, B-O-O-T-H-S, for a brief period, reminding them forevermore of the fact that in that journey they also dwelled in booths, and it was God who met their needs, who, in fact, satisfied the needs of the body and prepared them for the proper journey onto the promised land. As we notice in the opening verses of chapter 7, Jesus also made a journey to Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. However, his approach to Jerusalem was a bit of an interesting one. The Lord did not go up with his physical brothers because they did not believe in him. And furthermore, the Jews were seeking to take his life already. And hence, he needed to proceed to Jerusalem somewhat more secretly. Somewhat, you see, more hidden or in a more concealed fashion. A few days later, it would seem Jesus did make his way to Jerusalem, for therein he appeared and was able to teach during the course of that feast. And I'd like you to notice some of the things that he shared on that occasion. Beginning in verses 10 and following, we find that there was a rather notable difference of opinion with regard to who the Savior was. There were some who marked him to be a good man. There were others, however, who claimed he is merely a deceiver of the people. Doesn't that, in a way, remind us that there are still differences of opinion concerning the Master? There are some that you and I know who look upon Him as, without question, the amazing and immaculate Son of God. But there are others who don't view Him nearly as highly as that. The opinions differ, unfortunately. All of that's because of our failure, the failure of men to appreciate the teaching of the Scriptures and to let it be the guide. But that difference of opinion only leads us to note this. Jesus addressed the matter of his teaching in language found in verse 16. My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. The Lord, in fact, directly affirmed that those things which he taught, those elements of doctrine that he shared, were not of his own devising. They were not that which merely someone may have come up with. He spoke that which had been revealed from him by his Father, and that which all men should come to appreciate, and that which they should know and follow. That thought alone is a rather penetrating one in reminding us today that the Holy Scriptures have not been tampered with human hands. We do not follow devised and cunning fables, as Paul would later say. We follow that which is the revealed, affirmed will of God, but notice some of the other things that he, in fact, shared with them. They were bothered by the fact the Lord had healed on the Sabbath day. Do you recall our study in chapter 5? There was a man at the Bethesda pool in Jerusalem. Jesus healed him, and it occurred on the Sabbath day. That so agitated the Jews because they directly confirmed then, well, this man has violated the Sabbath. If he were a man of God, he would never have done that. The Lord readdressed that matter here and pointed the finger squarely to the element of hypocrisy. For he raises a rather powerful point. He asked them the question about circumcision. Will you circumcise a baby on the Sabbath? If the eighth day of that Hebrew baby boy's life were to have fallen on the Sabbath, would the Jews have circumcised him? The answer is yes. You see, they felt that that element of circumcision was exceedingly vital, and hence the Lord said, You are willing to circumcise a baby on the Sabbath, 
and yet you have problem with me making a man entirely whole on the Sabbath? Can we not see the hypocrisy in their actions and their failure to appreciate the great thunder of the Word of God and what human tradition had done to the law of the Sabbath? Those features only point us to other matters which the Lord shared on that occasion. The signs that Jesus pointed out to them, the miracles He performed, the doctrine He shared, not only was it convincing, it was also impressive. And for that reason, many of them took ear, took heed, and understood the greatness of who He was. Might we notice one interesting statement made in this chapter? You might notice in verses 32 and following, on that occasion, the Jewish leaders were of sufficient mindset and so against the Savior that they, in fact, sent officers to take him, to arrest him, to bring him into custody. We will look interestingly to see how did they react when they came to the point of arresting the Savior. Were they successful in that maneuver? And if not, why not? An element of confusion was added by Jesus, at least to the mind of some, when he made note that he was not going to be with them much longer. The Jews, of course, were greatly agitated and bothered. In what way will he not be with us, and how will it be that we will not be able to find him? All of that points us to the fact that they thought he meant he would go unto the dispersion, unto the Gentiles, and there he would do his preaching. We learn later in this book, the Lord had many things to share, not only with Jews, but with all of those that were also of Gentile extraction. And might we appreciate still today the glorious fact that the gospel is for all. We sing a song sometimes that in fact has that as its title, the gospel is for all. And as we ring the lovely hymn and sing that together from time to time, can we not think about the wonder of the fact that Jesus in fact had messages not only for a selected few, but also for all who would desire to be his people. The features that have brought us to that point in that chapter only lead us to notice what comes next. On the very last day of this feast, we again find Jesus teaching in the temple. It's interesting to notice how often the Savior devoted his attention to teaching. Are we today as incessant and as interested in teaching as he was? It's almost as though every time he came to Jerusalem, he made his way to the temple, for there would be a gathering and would be an opportunity for him to teach. Maybe each of us could take more seriously the attitude of teaching, finding those opportunities and allowing God to use us in his instrumentality so that we can be those that aid to teach others the blessed news and the blessed way to life. On this last day, we again find Jesus teaching. And as he did so, he spoke very interestingly about a special kind of water. He called it living water. And he again noted that those who partake in that will never thirst again. Needless to say, there were many who were overwhelmed by what he said, and that was enough to convict and convince them that he was the promised Messiah. And they were desirous of hearing more about the living water. But isn't it also interesting that that gave Jesus an opportunity to hear words like this? Note verse number 40. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. 
we might remember from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament that Moses had prophesied by the greatness of God's revelation that there was coming a prophet. A prophet like unto me, Moses said, and when he comes, all will hear his word. All will, in fact, stand four square upon the character of being subject to that. He will not merely be a prophet to a selected few. This great prophet, of course, is none other than the Savior, the Son of God. For that text in Deuteronomy chapter 15 is quoted in the book of Acts and applied directly by Peter to Jesus. You might want to read the closing verses of Acts chapter 3 for that reference. But might we notice on this occasion, this is the prophet. So far, we've thus seen one interesting reference to Jesus. Some thought him a prophet. Notice verse 41 again, if you would please. Others said, this is the Christ. Some thought he was a prophet. Others thought he was the Christ. We can make no mistake today if we would be pleasing to God in appreciating the fact, not merely a prophet, and notice I use the word a preceding that, for there are many in our world today who still think he was no more than merely a prophet. In fact, the Islam or Muslim religion believe him as such. But they fall far short of appreciating that the Lord was more than just a prophet. He was the Christ. And there were some on that occasion, by virtue of his preaching, by virtue of what they had witnessed and seen, were readily willing to declare and confess this is the Christ. And so it was at verse number 41, though some made that declaration, others were still in doubt because of the place that the Lord came from. Can't we be thankful that today, whether we hail from Jackson County, Tennessee, maybe Putnam County, Tennessee, or yea, any other of the 95 counties in this state, or yea, any of the other localities and small places around the globe, that part does not dictate and determine how we can stand before God. All of us have access to grace by faith, and in that regard and in that way, have access to heaven as our eternal home. The wonder then of these passages only lead us to close the chapter with some of these remarks. Those religious leaders in verses 45 and following, found themselves in a very unusual set of circumstances. The people were gaining in greater attention and respect for the Savior, and the religious leaders were unhappy about that fact. So much so, again, they had sent officers to arrest the Master. And when the officers returned, might I invite you to notice what they reacted and responded in verse 46. Never man spake like this man. When they came to take him, they seemed enamored by what he had declared and what they heard, and even they had to confess no man has spoken like this man. It's still the case, my friend, too, that no man has spoken like him. Jesus, in fact, was the singular Son of God. There shall never be another that shall come. Christ didn't have, God didn't have two sons. There's only the one. Didn't John, in fact, earlier in our book, make note of the fact that his only begotten Son? That word only identifies that there is but one singular Son of God, and you and I have the perfect gift already sent. These who understood that no man had spoken like this one leads us to note the chapter closes with another reference to Nicodemus in verse number 50 and 51. Nicodemus himself is a rather remarkable character study. 
at first this gentleman who had come by Jesus by night, thus indicating at least some issue of question in his mind or desire to find out more in a private setting from the Master. But now notice he makes a public defense of Jesus. And in that public defense, he in fact too is a leader of the Jews. Here is one Jewish leader who is not opposed to the Christ. He, in fact, openly says that one is in need of standing before law before judgment can take place, which is, of course, a truth, isn't it? As that chapter closes, might I ask us to quickly note three lessons we might have learned from it. Though certainly many more could be listed, our time tonight will allow us to at least make note of these three. As one considers these lessons, let us return to verse 5. We learn that Jesus' own physical half-brothers, those whose names are given to us in the 13th chapter of Matthew, we find that they did not believe in Him at that point. That helps us be reminded today of the touching way that we can in fact find ourselves in a tearful disposition with respect to our own family members, or at least those whom we dearly love at one time or another. Sometimes they will not believe. Though presented with the truth and though urged to follow it, and though in fact given the ultimatum of where the Scripture places them and the urgency of the hour in which they stand, they still make the choice to not believe. Though that's sad to us and though it's often heartbreaking, we are not able to force them into the kingdom God doesn't allow us to cram anyone into the church, for we are not able to do that. In Mark 3, verses 31 to verse 35, we find Jesus there making this statement. As He looked upon the audience, there was someone who had brought to Him the information that, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren seek for thee. In response to that, Jesus, pointing to the audience, said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. There was a linkage he shared with his followers, those disciples and those who appreciated his message that was in fact closer than physical union, closer than in fact blood, if you please. And you and I, though we long for our family members and other loved ones to come to know the faith that we enjoy, it is a decision that they themselves must make. And though it's sad when they refuse to believe, doesn't it remind us of that added sadness in Revelation 10? When there the Apostle John was expressly told, Take this book and eat it up. And when John ate it up, though it was sweet in his mouth, it was bitter in his belly. And that bitterness, as the context informs us, was due to the fact that so many whom he loved would not accept it. And thus the very message he preached was the very message that condemned them because they would not believe it. That's one lesson we learned from this chapter. It would seem that later, after the Lord was resurrected, his brothers did believe in him because his half-brother James was a leader in the Jerusalem church, according to Acts 15. For that we can be thankful, though we seem to know less about many of the other brothers. But what about a second lesson also extracted from this chapter? What about the matter of hypocrisy, again, set forth in the early third or so of the chapter? Here were those religious leaders who were accusing the Lord and even rebuking Him of healing on the Sabbath when they circumcise on the Sabbath. And the Lord pointed out to them, why is there that critical difference between your action of circumcision? If you call me making a man physically whole work, 
Why isn't your circumcision work? They, of course, had no good answer to that. And it reminds us still that they had made those statements by virtue of human tradition. God had not commanded in the Old Testament that you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. That was only human speculation. But it does remind us, doesn't it, about hypocrisy that can occur in our lives today. Isn't it so true that one of the most apparent hindrances to the moving forward of the church, at least in the mind of neighbors and friends, is because of what they see in us? I'm as good as he is. I live as good as she does. Well, I'm as good as all those folks down there. And though there are many mistakes made in such thinking as that, Still, the fact remains, they are watching you and me. And if we say one thing and live a different way, we are not aiding the cause of Christ at all. We're only throwing up stumbling blocks and roadblocks in, uh, in the way of the service and in the worship of others. And thus, notice some passages about hypocrisy found in the Bible itself. Beginning in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, a large portion, in fact, of that chapter, Jesus addressed the matter of hypocrisy. And he said, in regard to one's alms, that that's not to be done just so that others can watch and see. That's not the purpose for giving or for service to God in any regard. Not just so that others can, in fact, state that you and I are good people. But notice, not only that, our prayers are not to be just so that others can hear done in a hypocritical fashion without a true regard for what's taking place and the object to whom we are speaking. As those verses are reminded to us, could we not even recall in Titus 1 verse 16, when there it says they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable. Notice again, they profess that they know God, but by their works you sure wouldn't know it. What does that say about you and me today? When others see you and when they see me, they should see individuals who are branded with the mark of the Master. They should see you and I as if we bear in our body the marks of the Lord Jesus, to quote Galatians 6, verses 16 and following. They should see in you and, and, and in me a reference much like 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11. When there it says, in terms of the life we live, they should see Christ living in us. That reminds us again, there can be no hypocrisy if we're to be pleasing unto God. But maybe a third lesson somewhat briefly. Those religious teachers that seemed to be the controlling factors in John chapter 7, who sent the officers to arrest the Savior, and who in fact were so antagonistic to His message, they had a great influence in leading the people, but how did they lead them? In what way did they direct them? And in what way did they guide them? You might notice, especially in verse 47, it says, Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? Their argument was this. To those officers who refused to arrest Jesus, they said, Have you also been deceived into following this man? Into having confidence or respect in him? And then they pointed out, Have we? Have any of the religious leaders given any appreciation to him? Of course, the religious leaders were in error. And therein lies the problem. 
Isn't it still the case that so very many in our world choose to follow the statements of religious leaders rather than the statements of this book? What some man or some group of men have at some point said, what they have perhaps written in the form of a creed or some other type of doctrine or dogma, when all along those ideas of men fall very distant from what the declarations of God often have been and continue to be. The error then in the leadership of religious leaders. In Micah 3 verses 5 and 6, we find a scathing rebuke in the Old Testament about the shepherds of ancient Israel. Now, though that word shepherd there doesn't mean those that tended the literal sheep. It meant those men who were supposed to be the leaders of ancient Israel, serving as the shepherds and the guides. They were, in fact, not what they ought to have been. And because of that fact, they caused my people to err, to quote Micah 3, verse 5. The Lord, in fact, did not hold them guiltless for that, but in fact punished them severely. But notice, if you would, in Matthew 23, verse 3, we find Jesus again pointing out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day. And do we not remember Colossians 2, verse 8? where we are reminded ourselves to ever not give way to human speculation, to following those vain traditions of men. Those lessons have only prepared us, I trust, for what's to come in John the 8th chapter. And let's let that be the last and second part of our lesson this, this evening. As you'll notice, it too is a somewhat lengthy chapter, at least by number of verses. But as we look briefly at the 59 verses in this chapter, let us point out again, as we have done before, some of the explicit features of it, and then we'll strive to look at some lessons to be drawn from it. I've entitled this particular section of the lesson, The Light of the World. Might you recall with me that we entitled the lesson, This is the Christ? Well, who is the Christ? He is the light of the world. Let's shed some light upon that by looking somewhat more carefully at the 8th chapter of John. And the chapter begins in a somewhat memorable fashion. After a night spent on the Mount of Olives, the Lord again entered Jerusalem in the morning and began to teach. As we've noted earlier, He often was busy teaching and sharing the good news of salvation. But His teaching was interrupted on this occasion. Someone had the audacity to interrupt the teacher in the midst of His lesson. It was those Pharisees and scribes who brought before him a woman taken in adultery. And in fact, they even emphasized the fact she was taken in the very act of it. They, of course, asked the Lord his disposition, his verdict in regard to this case. They, of course, pointed out first, Moses in his law says that she should be stoned. But what do you say? We are quickly told that the reason they did this was not out of a sincere interest in knowing the truth of the matter, but again to entrap the master and to have him say something that they could use to destroy his reputation with the people. Jesus, in his amazing way, merely stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they continued to ask him. They were not going to let the matter die. Jesus lifted himself up and said, He that is without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. And then he merely stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger again. Amazingly at this point, 
we are told that their conscience began to convict them, and one by one these accusers departed from the oldest to the youngest. And when the Lord looked up again, only the woman was in his midst. And as the Lord looked upon her, he asked, Where are thine accusers? And she said, No man, Lord, has accused me. The Lord, in response to that, said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I made a brief statement on the slide, as you, as you may have re read or, in fact, are copying that, that that particular passage has been used many times, especially in somewhat recent decades, to teach what it does not teach. It is in that regard that I hope that you'll take note of the article in the bulletin that was in, in this morning's bulletin. A series of articles that I'll be putting in there beginning again this morning, continuing at least one more if not two more Sundays, will look more thoroughly at this text. There are some, you see, who use that to teach what is called situation ethics. Here was a case, so we are told, where a woman was taken in adultery. The law of Moses said she should be stoned, but Jesus did not do it. He, in fact, lifted the sentence and said, Let's let love and mercy prevail. Go and sin no more. So that the situation at the moment overruled and superseded the fact of God's law. Do you see how dangerous that kind of thinking can be? For you notice where that could easily lead. If you and I are at liberty to set aside any law of God because the situation seems to demand it, or because the circumstances in our view seem to, again, determine that that should be done, then that means what law of God should be bound on anybody. Suppose we consider baptism. Oh, let's let baptism be set aside. We seem to think in love and mercy God will look upon the intent of the heart, we are told, and He will thus not require and not demand baptism, though He has said so in His Word. If he set aside this law for this lady, why couldn't we set aside other laws for others? Let me again state, that is not the proper interpretation of this passage. And all those articles in the bulletin will help us more thoroughly appreciate that point. You see, there are very good reasons as to why, under the law of Moses, this lady on that occasion could not have been put to death. We need to understand what those were, and so we can more thoroughly appreciate the reasoning behind the Lord's insistence on the law. Far from removing it, he in fact kept the thorough details of it. That in fact highlights, I would submit, how important the law of God is today. The law of Christ is absolutely unassailable. Every word of it is significant, and every element and command is absolutely vital. We are not at liberty to set aside any of it. Every word of God is tried, Proverbs 30, verse 5. And do we not also recall in Hebrews 4, verse number 12, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Lord on this occasion, using the law of Moses, said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He did let her know very clearly she was a sinner. What she had done was sin, and that needed to stop. And that's still the case today, isn't it? Sin in my life and yours, habitual, ongoing, ritual kind of sin, needs to stop. For only in that way do we find the blessings of 1 John 2 on our behalf. 
the understanding that we have an advocate with the Father, but that means we do not continue in those habitual varieties and types of sins in our lives. Following this episode in John 8, verses 1 to 11, with this woman taken in adultery, we next find that Jesus had some more shocking statements to share with them. And verse number 12 is the place where I detected and used the title of this part of the lesson. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You and I have the opportunity, and it's a precious one at that, isn't it? To walk with light in our life. If we are stumbling around in darkness, it's not because the light is not available. It's because we have chosen not to pursue and follow it. Jesus said, I am the light of life. Is your life and is mine then based squarely around the light? No wonder in Matthew 6, verse 22 and 23, we read about there that if an, the eye is single, the whole body is dark because we're in darkness. We are not following the light of God. As we thus seek to follow that light, you'll notice in the very next segment of the, of the chapter, Jesus had some rather shocking statements to share with them. He affirmed that there were two witnesses, he and his father, that gave credence and evidence to who he was. He also quickly made note to them of the fact of this rather shocking statement. Would you ponder the greatness of this point? He said to these Jews now, neither you, in terms of your nation, know me or my father. These Jews ought to have known the Old Testament. They ought to have appreciated the power and character of God, and yet the Lord told them, you do not know God. Might that remind us today not to be deluded. We can go through motions in life and maybe even deceive ourselves into thinking we know God when in fact, maybe we don't. Maybe we are not living in accordance to His will. And He tells us in 1 John again, chapters 2 and 4, that if we do not keep His commandments, we do not know Him. So it doesn't matter whether we, what we may think, if the commandments are not being kept, we don't know Him. Doesn't that highlight the significance of His commandments and how life-giving they are and how beautiful, in fact, that they are as well? That only points us to the prediction Jesus made of his departure. The fact to them, he said, I'll not be with you much longer. And they wondered, where is he going to go that we will not be able to find him? Jesus, of course, meant he was going to be crucified and leave, of course, the earth and its confines. They didn't at that point understand what he meant by that fact. But John quickly tells us later they did know, and later they appreciated that. As we ponder the greatness of that ascension, verse 28 makes a beautiful point. Might I invite you to read it along with me? In verse 28, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. When I'm lifted up, you will know that I am He. Do we not remember at the scene of the crucifixion when the Lord was there at raised, lifted up, if you will, suspended by those cruel and wicked individuals that crucified Him that day? The veil of the temple was rent, and there was a centurion who said, Truly this man was the Son of God. 
there he knew for a certainty and many others knew well that this was who he had said that he had been. May we never forget the final proof of the character of, the, of Christ comes in the fact that he was raised. He was resurrected, never to die again. And so too you and I can look forward to the greatness of the event of our resurrection to live with God forevermore, participating in that resurrection of life spoken of in John 5, verses 28 and 29. Beginning in verse 31, the Lord had to again address an issue that the Jews raised with him. Beginning in that verse, Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Freedom is something I think we in this nation especially have a very tender consideration for. We often have sent hundreds of thousands to die on battlefields for the cause of freedom, for the cause of protecting liberty and free choice and the opportunity to choose. And yet Jesus said here, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free from what? Free from sin. And that freedom is found only in the nature of the Word of God and the truth that is shared, of course, by it. May we never lose sight of the preciousness and beauty and uniqueness of the truth of God, because in that truth do we not find in the verses that follow that the statement the Lord made in verse 34. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. That tells us what this context was. One who is a committer of sin is the servant or slave to sin. That's the worst kind of slavery of all, isn't it? It would be far worse to think about that kind of slavery than to be a physical slave to some employer. If one's a slave to sin, there is no salvation. If one remains in that state... As this chapter rapidly moves to its last section, the Lord's discussion with these Jews continued to be very direct. And in fact, some of the statements He made were almost compelling in their boldness. Might I ask you to notice just a few of the remaining things that He said, and then we'll look at a lesson or two, and then the lesson will be yours for tonight. They again made a direct statement of their association with Abraham. But the Lord in directness told them, you do not do what Abraham did, and hence, you do not act as he did. If you were Abraham's children, he told them, you would do what Abraham did. He was a follower of me. He, in fact, believed in my word, and he did what I commanded, but you do not do that. Does that sound like bold preaching from the Savior? Here in the midst of these antagonistic Jews to directly tell them you do not do what this man Abraham, who you claim is your father, did. But not only that, verse 44 even strengthens the language. Because in that passage he says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus said, you have a father all right, but it's not Abraham. It's the devil. And today, as we appreciate the sternness and boldness of that kind of language, the Lord only spoke that which was the truth, didn't he? He wasn't trying to cover the matter or to deceive them into thinking that things were right when in fact they weren't. He merely spoke the truth on that matter and in fact told them, you are liars as well. 
that reminds us today, doesn't it? That as Jesus closed this chapter in verse 55, as well as verse 59, he highlighted his eternal nature. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, in fact, traced himself far back even to the creation and before, as he said, I was here before Abraham was. I have been alive. I have, in fact, been in existence. And we can see the eternality of Jesus. And the fact of his eternal nature is one of the proofs of his deity because only God is eternal. But with the chapter closed in that fashion, again, a very brief set of lessons, and we'll be somewhat quick about that. But might we notice how strong these can be for you and me. Let's begin again in the early part of John chapter 8 by noting verse number 31. If we are to be a disciple of the Master, we must abide in His Word. That again may seem such an obvious statement in one way, but there are many in our world who do not consider it so. Maybe you've heard someone say, Give me Christ, but I don't want commandment keeping. Give me Christ, but commandment keeping is legalistic. That's not a part of what the Lord demands. That isn't true at all, is it? Jesus there said, if you are to be my disciple, you must abide in my word. No word, no disciple. We thus can't claim to be his disciple and do what we want, what we prefer, what we think. If we are to be his disciple, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14, 15. And in John 15, 14, he said, you're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. The marvelous statement there reminds us still of the importance of the Word and our attachment and our obedience to it if we are to be His acceptable disciple. But in the second place, one who commits sin is a slave to sin. That sounds like such a harsh way of putting it, doesn't it? That person who in a habitual way commits sin is thus a slave to sin is exactly the description set forth in the sacred scriptures, isn't it? No wonder Paul said in Romans 6, 12, Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body. If sin is reigning, then it's the king. It is the leader. It is the directing, guiding influence. One again who is a committer habitually of it is a slave to it. We sometimes think about addictions and the sadness of those that are addicted to various and sundry things, be it drugs or alcohol or sexual kinds of vices. And yet, those are only one type of example of slavery to sin. May we be careful and guard our lives so that Ephesians 5, 3 is descriptive of us. Let not uncleanness be found in thee. We are not interested in being people of God and being unclean in that fashion that disappoints and in that fashion that brings us aside from Him. Truth is a reality, John eight thirty two. We live in a postmodern world to borrow that modern language. And um, quite often that phrase postmodern has only bad things associated with it. So please be careful if you read articles that try to lift high a postmodern church or a postmodern theology. Postmodern doesn't change the fact you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. There is but one revealed truth and there shall never be another. This truth is the inspired, infallible, authoritative Word of God. And that takes us to the final lesson for tonight. 
that infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word of God sometimes needs to be spoken boldly and sometimes need to be spoken with directness. Jesus did so here with the audacity and the truthfulness to tell them the devil is your father, to tell them you're a bunch of liars. You and I, of course, intact, desire to present the truth in a way that attracts individuals to it. But there are those who have such a disposition that at times boldness is the only way to reach them. That's the only thing that will crack the hard shell that surrounds their perceptions and presuppositions. The Bible gives us authority to use the Scriptures in that way when that is the right thing to do. Speak the truth in love, we're told, Ephesians 4.15. And in 1 Peter 4.11, we're reminded if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. With those lessons perhaps shared from this second segment, chapter number 8, we can conclude our lesson tonight by at least thinking somewhat briefly of these summary statements. We have looked at lessons regarding things from hypocrisy to belief to the character in chapter 8 of the nature, as we've just seen, about bold speaking. All of it's reminded us this 